Hello everyone, Colin Daly here, letting you know that Parkour Ed can now be found on most major podcast streaming services. From Apple Podcasts to Spotify, Deezer, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you will find Parkour Ed. If you enjoy Parkour Ed, please go and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. It really helps the show get discovered by listeners who may find it interesting. Enjoy the show! Hello and welcome to Parkour Ed. My name is Colin Daly and today is Tuesday, January 10th, 2023. And I have a special guest here today. And as always, I will let my guest introduce himself starting with his name. Okay, so my name is Clément Bluteau. How did you get the name Clément Bluteau? Okay, so Clément is my first name. Actually, I have three first names. Clément is the number one. The second is Olivier. And the third is François. The names number two and three, they were given to me from my godfather and my godmother. My godfather's name is Olivier and my godmother's name is Françoise. And you translate it for the male version and at the end I have three names. So I think this comes from the Catholic side, you know. I don't know if everybody in France do have three names. Right. But I guess for most yeah, of it's us, a lot I think. of people. I know yeah. in the United States we often have two names. I'm ah, okay. Colin Mark. Oh, okay. Daly is my last name. Also, Clément is a nice name. It means kind. Kind. Means it's kind. from Latin. From Latin. Clemens means kind. And Olivier is an olive tree. Exact. Olivier is uh, from and, the tree. And François, and François means François. from the, the tribe of the Franks. Is exact, that? exact. All right, That's so you're well. the kind olive tree from the Frank tribe. Exact. I'm a mix <laughs> of like uh, almost pure <laughs> Latin uh, roots. <laughs> Wonderful. And Bluto, what does okay. that come from? So, I, it makes me think of Bluto, which is the uh, nemesis of Popeye. My brother, when he was young, during his studies, his colleagues were teasing him, calling him Pluto. But it didn't happen to me. I don't know why. So actually, my name, Pluto, my family, originally, like 200 years ago, we come from center west of France in the um, department called Vendée, where you have a lot of wind. And so it used to be, in the past, many, many windmills constructed in the area to make flour. And in a mill, you have a special device, which is called sieve. Steve, how do you call it? Sieve. Sieve. So in the, in the windmill, you have the same kind of device, but to refine the flour. So the name of this device is called Blutoir. Ah, Blutoir. Blutoir. Okay. So sifted in French is Blutoir. Blutoir. And my name comes from there. All right. Interesting. There's and always a good story behind yeah. everybody's name. I and like actually, this. I noticed there's many Canadians in Quebec named Bluto. Because in the past, from this region, there were many trades, so ships coming from France to North America. So actually, nowadays, you have many, many people that have this family name. What would be the nearest port from that region? You have La Rochelle, which is very close, like the the biggest. And and since there was a lot of wind, there were a lot of mills, were there a lot of wheat fields? More so yes, than elsewhere? for sure. For sure. But I guess in that region, there were, used to be, but it could come from any other regions in France. They were carrying it in the roads or in the boats along the rivers until this region to refine, to make the flour. 
finally. If I understand correctly, you were born in the region where your family has been for at least 200 years. No, actually. No. No, actually, Where were no. you born? So I was born in southwest of France. My family, 200 years ago, comes from this region, Vendée, but then they went to Paris, and then they went to southwest of France. So I was born in Le Gers. It's, it's not far from Toulouse. Close to Toulouse, a region which is not windy at all. <laughs> not windy at all. Not windy at all. Not close to the sea. It's surrounded by fields. It's a very countryside region. Is that rugby country? It is a very a huge rugby fan country, countryside. And we have a quite famous club there. The capital city of the department is called Osh. And we have a very famous club there. And some of the best players finally went to a professional career after that. So we are not so famous, but locally famous for this. So there's a good infrastructure there's got for a good for infrastructure learning. for learning, yeah, exactly. So ab about what year were you born? 1986. 1986, and your parents were born there too? Yes, exactly. And you have many brothers or sisters? I have one brother, he's four years older than me, and my younger sister, two years younger, and they both still live where I was born in the region. Really? So they still live close to my parents. So oh, that's nice that's for your nice. parents. That's perfect. <laughs> and what did your parents do? My mother was working in primary school. She used to be a teacher before in a primary school. Then she became a head director for a few years. And my father was working as an educator in special needs buildings where you have people in special needs like uh, autistic people, schizophrenic people, people who are like uh, mentally disabled. Very interesting, so, good. Yeah. And mm. so you come from a, f a family of educators. Yes. Do your brothers and sisters work in education at all too? Not at all. My sister is working in a lab. She's working in biology. She's like very, very interested by trying to understand the disease, where it comes from, how can we improve the treatments actually that you can find in the market. So she's very nerdy and working in a lab. And my brother is more into computer design. So he's working for companies to create advertisements, create 3D images, 2D images for ad campaigns and also for many companies to make a logo, for example, to make a logo for a company, an association, whatever is needed. What birth order are you in? With the I'm oldest, in the middle. The I'm the middle you're the, child. You're the middle child. <laughs> yeah. You're the middle child. I'm the middle child. Well, paint a picture for us. When you were born, what did you come home to? Did you grow up in an apartment, a house? Were we in a rural area, an urban neighborhood? I was raised in a small village. When I say small, it's 200 inhabitants. Can you imagine? 200. Yeah, that's 200 inhabitants. 200. What is that, like five bars it's and like, two bakeries? And not, <laughs> wha, wha, it used to... Actually, we, we don't have that anymore. But no. it used to be one bakery before... Yeah. And one bar. That's now all. they are completely closed. And, and of course a church. There and a of church. course a church. We okay. still have the church. Still have the church. <laughs> all right. Does your family still live in that yeah, area? Yeah, they still live there. They still live there. It's a very peaceful area. It's not what we could imagine as a very beautiful village, like a picture, a postal card, you know, you could imagine. There are some beautiful houses there, but most of people were implanting and building their own house recently in that village. So you have many recent houses around so it's beautiful because it's completely surrounded by fields it's in a valley so actually the name of my village is called le brouille montbert which means if you translate it from the occitan it's from occitan language which used to be the local language before it's translated like the foggy green hill because the village is divided in two parts one in the valley one in the hill and so in between those 
Of course, regularly you have a mist during the morning, especially in autumn and in spring when it's getting colder. So it creates this kind of mystic atmosphere. And that's where the name of the village comes from, this atmospheric phenomenon. It mm. sounds lovely. Mm. Now, what is the nearest big city? Okay, the nearest big city is called Osh. But Osh. When, when we say big city, it's 25,000 inhabitants. When, so when people are, are implanting, as you said, mm. moving in and mm. building their houses, are they creating a bedroom community to commute to work in a nearby city, like to work in Osh or another city nearby? For sure. So there's no employment at all in the village. So you have to travel with your own car. So everybody has a car because there's no transportation there. We have no bus except for the school. Even today? Even today. Is there a school? And was there a school when you were growing up? Yes, yes. There's still a school. A, a local primary school? Exactly. Local primary, but which is only doing the first level which is like a maternelle, grand maternelle. Okay. So that's it, you know. So it's a few years in the school. Then, so actually... So would it be like so maternelle and CP? No, not even CP. Until CP. I remember we did three schools during our primary courses, actually. One in another village, then the second part in my village, and the third part in another village. So you end up your primary school visiting three different uh, schools, actually. Right. And then, so you get to know the kids from the surrounding communities. For sure. Because Can you imagine we were like 12 in total? 12. It's not 12 per class. It's 12 in total. Amazing. So it's like four students per class. It's that's, a very villagey atmosphere. That, you know? That's something that has always impressed me about France. They do continue to keep their local schools yeah, open. Yeah, they try their best. They try to, their to best. I know mm. that that hasn't been the case so much in the United States since my parents, who were oh. born in the 40s. My father went to a one-room schoolhouse in South Dakota. It was called daily school oh. because the only people who went there were dailies. They were oh. all his brothers and sisters and cousins. That was it. The United States has huge rural areas, but people are bused to bigger schools to make it more financially viable. So you had that experience going to three different primary schools. Yeah, yeah. And then it was time for college. College. So what did you do for college? Did you have college and lycée, middle and high school together, or were they separate places? Separate places. Okay. And actually, it was a, a huge jump from the primary school. Can you imagine? We were like knowing each other by heart. It was like my best friends. We were seeing each other during weekends, playing together, spending time always together. And then suddenly I went to a school where I didn't know anyone. And this school were like 400 students, which was for me 20 times what I used to know. So I was pretty shocked at that time. It took me time to appreciate more the college. And for me, college were not the best year, I can tell you. Nowadays, when I try to remember... I never remember my years in college. I always remember a lycée I and see. primary school, but never in between. For me, it was, yeah, was, was not a happy time, you know, struggling, evolving. You know, the students can be tough to you. Yeah. I was kind of shy and uh, I had also acne, you know. Yes. Very, very severe. So that made you a target I, for I was teasing the target and... number one, you know. Oh, so, a... uh, but, I mean, never violence. It yeah. was more like psychological disturbance, but I was not traumatized at all. Could have been much worse. Middle school age is a tough time. time. And as teachers, we're now getting more and more training. There's been a lot more research. We have 
the on knowledge, promo, right? promo bay. We've mm. done a lot of study and many programs here at the school, which yeah, anti-intimidation. Exactly. Uh, there was not all this no, before. I we didn't remember, have that. I never heard about that. When we were in middle school, it was, it was kill or be killed. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to survive? <laughs> it's getting better, but there's still a long way to go. And, and it's, it's not easy for our students in that age group. So it's good for exactly. us not to forget. I think a lot of times for boys too, because we tend to mature just a little bit a little less, bit longer. less mm. quickly Qu- than, yeah, less than quickly. the girls. Mm, and, and, that's for sure. But I could be wrong there. I only have my perspective. Before I go on, you mentioned Occitan. Right. Now, I know that's a local regional language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did anyone in your family speak Occitan? Did you have any exposure to it other than the average few words here and there that everybody from the region knows? Actually, not at all. This language was fully spoken by my grand-grandfather. Then he didn't pass it to my grandfather. So that was gone for my family. And was that part of the movement to Very centralize much. the French culture? For sure. Because for the sure. same thing happened all over. So actually, I think it's even less stronger than in Bretagne. You have specific schools where you still learn the language oh, yes. properly, yes. like not once a week, every day. They call it their immersion school. So they call yeah. it Dirwan, I think. Dirwan, this it. kind of stuff. Yes. And we don't have it, I think, but I'm not sure, 100%, maybe some schools, but very few. So actually, we did have one lesson per year of Occitan when I was in primary school. A guy was coming once a week and we were singing, playing games in Occitan. Can language. you still say a few words? Do you remember anything? <laughs> There's only one thing I remember. Is it was a game. So I just remember this. Lukutelu means the knife. So Lukutelu Melu means the game of the knife. So it was a trick game. You put the knife. It was a very small knife. Yes. So he could, he could hide the knife inside his hand. So we'd be left or right, whatever. And then he's putting his hands in his back. And then he's like putting the knife in the right hand or left hand. You don't know. And then he shows you his hands. And you need to guess in which hand is ah, the knife. I see. But it's like guess I remember, hand, yeah. yeah, guess what hand. Yeah, guess what hand. Lukutelumelu. And then you had to say, I don't remember how you say this hand, this hand. So it was a way to practice the language. I see. Through games. He was a funny guy, I remember. He looks like very hippie style. He was coming with his guitar, you know. Yeah, nowadays the teachers don't bring their knives to school. To That's for sure. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> so dangerous. <laughs> Not allowed anymore. So I assume you started learning English then in college, or did you learn in primary school? Not at all. So you started in college. Yes. Would that have been in CZM you started English? Was it your first I think language? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Would it have been your first foreign language? First foreign language. And then what would your second? Second foreign? was Spanish. Spanish. Mm. Ah. Especially because we're close to Spain. Of course. Toulouse, of close course. to Spain. So many students are choosing Spanish. So you finished your college and then you passed your brevet and then you went on to... The high school. Lycée. High school. That's 10th, 11th, 12th grade yeah, exactly. or second, second première terminale. So what type of lycée did you go to? What was? What did it look like? Where was it? Tell me everything. Yeah. So it was in Osh. I told you the big Osh. city. Okay. So 25,000 inhabitants. <laughs> the biggest city around. So it was a private, but private, we call it private under contract. It's not 100% private. It's private, but still we follow totally the curriculum, the baccalaureate. 
Did it have any programs. affiliation to religion or some yes. other thing? So was it a Catholic, Catholic, a Catholic school? Okay. But again, nothing was mandatory to do. Right. You had the opportunity, if you wanted, to go to church, to talk about religion, but it was not at all mandatory. You could have a regular week without anything to do with the religion, right. which was my case. I was not really interested anymore yeah. in the religion. And the teachers, though, were all certified the same as other teachers. Same, but exactly they, the same. Uh, is there a difference between the public school teaching certification and the private school teaching certification? I know there's a, today there's a slight, slight difference, difference, but it's the same qualification. You it's just, exactly you the just same decide skills, which one you're going to exact. be in. The demands are exactly the same. I so see. The, there's not any difference. And at the end, you will be paid as a teacher by the government. I see. As in a public school. And does it have the same retirement scheme, the same... Exactly the same. The same. Everything it's is just, the same. You just have to decide at the beginning which exactly. one you want to be. The, the big Do difference... Do they have a di different mm. uh, concours, different yes. exams? For CAPES. Okay, I see. For aggregation, same. Same, I Then, see. if you choose one path, if you choose to go to the private... You will never, I mean, at that time, I don't know now, you right. will never be able to go back to the, the public school. Oh. But at the opposite, you can jump from the public to the private. There's kind of bridge in between, but just one-way bridge. Nowadays, I have no idea. You came from somewhat of an education family, but your brothers and sisters are in kind of scientific, your brother's artistic, but he works mm. for a scientific uh, in field. Yeah, kind of uh, computer, computer stuff. Computer yeah. stuff. Mm. So, mm. so I'm going to make a guess. I'm going to ah. guess you went for the back S. Yes, you I did. did. <laughs> How did I Good guess, guess. <laughs> that? Now, tell, tell our listeners what you teach here at IFS. So I teach physics and chemistry. No surprise there. <laughs> no surprise yeah, there. Yeah, no surprise. Okay, so anyway, you were oriented towards the back S. Yes. And how was that? Actually, that was a great experience for me. High school were the best years in, in my secondary schools. I told you I didn't really enjoy college. So for me, second was a kind of difficult because, again, I went to a new school where I didn't know anyone. So it was like uh, ground zero. So it was not easy to make friends at the beginning. But because it was a very small school, private school at that time, compared to the next door public high school, which is much, much bigger. So it could be more impressive for the newcomers. These schools were like human scale. So it was more easy to get adapted to the place. And I make friends quite fast at that time. And some of the friends I made there are still very good friends now. So it's very important for me. This was a good moment for me. Oh, like that's a, great. A very joyful moment. Yeah, joyful moment. And it's not too far from where you grew up. I mean, exactly. It's, it's I was taking far. the bus. So it's still linked to home and still linked home. Where your family still is. I had to wake up quite early, but that was fine. You know, it was not crazy. Like a 50 minutes bus, that was fine, you know. I mm. see. Mm. Now, obviously, the French and the American high school experiences are completely different, but... I think even the French high school and the French high school in Singapore experiences are completely different. That's for well. sure. You said you took the bus to school. Mm. A lot of our students take the bus to school. Yeah. But did you have classmates or did you yourself ever you know, drive to school? Did you ever take a, a moped or were there any other ways mm. to go? I mean, those are things that our students never do. Interesting. So I didn't do it. No. I was not. Actually, I used the scooter when I was 15, 16. So more high school, during high school, at the end of my high school. Oh, uh, you mean, you mean uh, college? You mean middle school? No, no, after, like, uh, so we start a lycée at 15, oh, 15, okay. 16, 17. Right. So 16, I was starting to use a scooter right. when I, because I needed it. I was working in a restaurant mm -hmm. during holidays, so right. I used it to go from my house to the restaurant. But I never used it to go to school because we had a public bus, 
And it was too far to have a motorbike or moped or like a scooter to go from my house to the school. That's interesting. You did have a part-time job as a student, though, when you were in high school. 16, 17, yeah. In a restaurant. Yes. That's very common for an American high school kid, but Mm. it doesn't seem like it's that common for a French kid during the school year. So actually, I did it when I was in the end of Terminal. Ah. Yes, end of Terminal in the summer. Oh, during Before the summer. Before starting the so studies. Not, not during, not during the school the, year. No, not during the school that's year. No, 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 no. The academic not rigor. Co- exact. Academic rigor. You are under the wing of the parents. Yes. So I think you do have some students, but very rarely, who are working during their high school class. Yeah. After it's common. Yeah. In the United States, it's very so common you do. to have a In, part-time during job high school. during high wow. school. Okay. That's quite, that's quite interesting. Yeah. the academic rigor is can be very high, but it's, in my opinion... Not quite as difficult as a French program. Mm. But that said, we catch up later. I think. Yeah. So during your lycée experience, mm-hmm. did you ever have any exchanges or did you ever travel abroad? Because it seems to me you're very fluent in English. You have a very strong level of English. You express yourself very well. And it's rare for people to be able to do that unless they had an early start. So did you get a chance to study or travel abroad a little bit when you were younger? No. Something that... Sh- came naturally. Yeah, I think it, that came much later, actually. Later, I see. When I was 23. Okay. I would say that was a start for me. To, so that uh, would have been after your... After my studies, actually. But what did you do after Lycée? So after Lycée, I went to what we call École Préparatoire. Okay. So it's called Matsup also. So it's two years preparation to prepare the um, exams for engineering schools. But actually, I stopped after one year. That was the hardest experience for me. For non-French people listening, they may not be familiar with the idea of a preparatory, preparatory program. Yeah, program yeah. But it's just a very, very intense, Super rigorous intense. program. Rigorous. It's almost like a hazing, yes. like bizutage. Bizutage, hazing, a military discipline. You yeah. need to be fully dedicated to those years. Otherwise, you will not pass. And nobody gets out without any emotional scars from what Nobody. <laughs> nobody. It's not possible. And it's then, like... of course, you're working for a competitive entrance exam. And also, it's very competitive. And so you can spend two years working with your fingers to the bone and then fail and the, at the entrance And at the end, fail at the end. But sure. if you do go through the preparatory process, do you get a diploma from that or it just gives you no. access to it? A... It gives you access. So in my case, I stopped after one year and then I had the right to go straight to the second year in university instead of starting again from the first year. So, so it was the same value as a year uh, of university. That's an equivalence. An equivalency, exactly. I see. But so it wasn't lost time. It wasn't lost time. And to be honest, even if it was suffering a lot, I did learn some stuff. I learned also to be humble. I was already reaching my limits, you know, so I was like, okay, let's take it easy for the next part of my studies. Be smart and try not to overcome your difficulties. Of course, I wanted to achieve better, but I felt I was too young to face this kind of challenge. I felt I was not prepared. I felt that was not the time for me to dedicate as much to some kind of competition that I was not even enjoying. So I said, that's not for me. And I enjoyed much more at university. It took me quite a while to figure out what this system entailed because Mm. it's so foreign to someone who's not French, myself being... That's only French, right, this system? Well, I I assume so. Maybe in other countries, but it's definitely not American. Mm. And when I first heard about it, it sounded very sadistic to me. But I think it's evolving. It's evolving. I do believe, though, that the notion of 
you know, attempting something exactly. and maybe not succeeding, but not looking at it as a failure can be a very positive experience. Exactly. I mean, we have to fail to progress. I mean, you if know, we don't we push to ourselves to our limit, if we don't yeah. push ourselves to our limits, exactly. then, then we don't know what we, we can do. We don't know what we can do. Exactly. And so, so in a way, it can be traumatic for some. As I told you in my experience, when you're 18, 17, you may feel like, Why am I suffering that much for what? You know, I'm so young. I should enjoy. I should like discover new things. And instead, it felt like discipline, like military, like you are eating the knowledge. It's not like you are transported into the sphere of knowledge. It's the opposite for me. It was like a sinking inside knowledge. You know, this kind I of see, feeling. That's a yeah, great I image. had this feeling. Yeah, yeah, sinking inside knowledge. Excellent <laughs> image. Thank you. So after you broke away from the prepa, the mm. preparatory process, you went into the second year of a university. Of university Now, yeah. what do you call a university? You have many universities in Toulouse. Number three, which is what? called Toulouse Three, which is like the scientific place. I knew at that moment that physics was my thing, not mathematics, not chemistry, physics. So I knew it already. What led you to physics? So it's from my grandfather, actually. So I have an uncle who is now he's retired. He's living in Canada. He used to work for NASA. He was part of the projects, the people who built the giant arm in the sh space shuttle from Canada. He belonged to the team who were, was working originally on the project. So he did a PhD in Canada about polar lights. And at that time, so he, he, he did study in the same university as I studied in Toulouse. Now, our, our polar lights, is that what we call the northern lights? Northern lights, exactly. So the northern lights is the green. Yeah. Explain what it is for people. Okay, you probably so, know better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very beautiful atmospheric phenomenon. This phenomenon, you can watch it from northern part of the Earth, like around the polar regions. So it happens during the night. You can see lights dancing above your head, dancing in the sky. The, the lights can be green, can be red, can be orange. This comes from what we call the solar wind. So the sun is throwing particles around him through space. Those particles are charged. We call them charged particles. They are traveling from the sun to the earth. When they reach the earth, they are going through what we call the magnetic field of the earth. And going through the magnetic field of the Earth, they are dropped inside the atmosphere. And when those particles are inside the atmosphere, they will interact with the atmosphere particle, oxygen and nitrogen for the most part. And this reaction will create light. So that we call the polar lights. So this is a signature of the sun, actually, that we can see on the Earth. That's a show I never saw in my life. So that's one of my dreams. Of course, the bucket list, you know. <laughs> When I said you could probably explain it better than I could, I was right. <laughs> I'm very impressed I at your ability. <laughs> I'm very impressed at your ability to explain that in a language that isn't even your first language. Mm. That is amazing. And for the first time, I understand. I mean, I understood everything. And that's physics. That's great. So he inspired you. So, your, so inspired he was your me, exactly. He, he was my uncle. uncle. And he's, uh, he's is he uncle. still living? Still living. Oh, okay. yeah, still so alive. He's he retired now. He's still, yes. Yeah, he's my uncle. And he inspired you. And he so inspired me. And also my grandfather was a big, like, he was like, so I told you my father was working with disabled people. Actually, this place was created by my grandfather because one of my uncle was born with a disease and he became autistic, like very, very strong autistic, like not able to communicate, very harsh condition. And at that time, my grandfather was desperate because there was no structure except hospitals 
where they were dragging you and putting you to sleep, basically, just to avoid for you to do crisis in front of people. So there was no human way to treat those people, to take care of those people, except some very specific buildings, establishments, but they were very rare at that time. And in the, the region, in my region, there was no such a, uh, a place. So my grandfather decided to build it. Fascinating. Yeah. Excellent. So actually, my grandfather was dedicated all his life to build this place for his, of course, for his son, but also uh, it's still, this place is still very active now. There are like 200 people, and it's like in the middle of the fields. They try, of course, they use drug medication, right. but it's not only about that. It's about giving them the opportunity to enjoy life to make uh, art, to move, to go to the garden. That's great. So, so it's, it's, a, it's what, a great thing. Do yeah. you know the name of the facility? What is it called? Ca so, so it's called Castel Saint-Louis. My grandfather bought it before it belonged to nuns. It was a convent. I but see. then when he decided to buy this place, the community of the convent was splitting for whatever the reason I don't remember. And then the place was available. Oh, and great. my grandfather said, like, wow, that's a great place to do this project for the disabled people. That was his project. But then aside of this, he never went to school. Really? He went to school until 14. I see. That at, was at common. That, time, that, was, that common. was very common. So to, what, did, to, what did he end up doing for his life? I mean, obviously he made a little bit of money if he could buy a castle. Exactly. So actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good uh, remark. Actually, he, he had to raise funds. I see. So it took him 10 years, I think, to raise funds. Oh, okay. So it was a big struggle. So in between, he was doing a regular job. His grandfather, my, my grand-grandfather, so his father, was doing like at a shop. Oh, okay. Kind of shop. So like selling stuff, grocery. Commerce. Commerce. Yeah. Great. So it was like uh, still going on with this, uh, with this shop for many years until he could finally start this project uh, of his own. But he was, because he never went to school, he was always telling me, I'm so frustrated. You guys are so lucky to go to school. You should enjoy every moment. So he was that frustrated that he was self-taught. And he was passionate about everything. Languages, geology, economy, biology, history, everything. His library was full of books, and that's inspired that's a lifelong even, learner. Even for people with education, it's yeah, important to Of course. Keep, important to keep going. That's I mean, important. We forget more than we learn. So. You have to keep going. Right. So you're in the university number three in yeah. Toulouse, right? In Toulouse, yeah. And you're studying physics. Physics, exactly. And so what kind of degrees do they yeah. offer for that? I mean, what exactly did you do? So I did the, what you call the LM. So license is bachelor and master degree. So I did the, the license in three years, we call the Bachelor of Science. And then when you end up with the Bachelor of Science, you enter the master degree, which is divided in two years. The first year is called Master 1. The second year is called Master 2. First year is still very general. So I was specialized in physics. I didn't do chemistry anymore at okay. all. But it was still many different fields of physics during Master 1. Master 2 was much more specific. We could choose specifically the fields we wanted to study. And my specialty was microscopic science. We call it statistic physics, quantum mechanics, also molecular interactions, all this kind of stuff. Solid physics, all this de dedicated to the microscopic scale. So that was very tough, but very interesting, especially at the end of the university. When you start university, there's like in one class, maybe 100, 200 students. At the end, we are 10. Can you imagine they, people just leave? They go to another cursus, they go to another school, they go to another parkour. 
And oh, at the end, you have the hardcore of Those physics, who are really uh, locked in. Yeah, and I was really admiring my colleagues. They were so smart. I felt always like watching them, you know, and admiring them. They were seeing physics like art at this level. And some of them are still doing research now. I was sure those kind of guys, that's the guys who are made for research. I could feel it at that time. And I could feel I was not made for that. <laughs> when, when you get up into those higher levels, mm. the highest levels, the, really the lines get blurred between physics and philosophy and, for sure, for and, sure. and art. It's just Our discussions were like a bit crazy sometimes, you know. I still remember the best discussions were during that time. We were drinking, of course, sometimes with the <laughs> colleagues. And when alcohol in, is involved, wow, we could go quite far. That quite was the far. chemistry that you left Yeah, out. that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still around. <laughs> Still coming back. Well, <laughs> it was interesting discussions. So you did the Masters 1, Masters 2. Yeah. And then w when you finished that program, what did you do next? So my next step, I didn't have much choice than going through a PhD or something else, which I was looking for at that time. I was interested in doing journalism. I felt like research was not really for me. It's too hardcore. It's too nerdy. Spending my time in a lab was not for me. I mean, I, I did enjoy it for a while, but I felt quickly that that was not my destiny. I felt it. And then I, I was like, maybe journalism to talk about science in another way would be interesting. But I never wrote anything at that time. I never did any podcast or any websites, but I tried, there is an exam to enter a specific school in Lille, and it's a specific parcours dedicated to journalism and science. So oh. actually, I ended up doing this exam, like, let's go, let's try, we'll see. And I passed the first stage, which was the writing part. I was surprised myself that I passed it, but at the end, the oral one was like, they crushed me because... They felt I was not prepared. And that was fine. I knew it. I knew the people who were engaging in that school were with a huge background from whatever. It could be science, but then they had like writing articles. They already have like a portfolio and uh, in media, journalism. And media and communication as well. Exactly. So they expected students to be already trained, at least the basic stuff. And I was not at all. So they felt like, okay, they needed to eliminate me for this, <laughs> this and year. this was but also an eliminatory exam, like exactly. a concours. For sure, concours, concours, concours. So concours. it had a limited amount of a limited people. amount. And they, so so I, I was not surprised, to be honest. And I was like, okay, what should I do? So I tried to apply to some PhD program, but... I was not really motivated at that time, to be honest. And at the end, some took me, but I refused because I felt like I don't want to engage in that path. Okay, maybe I can postpone my choice. Like in three years, I will have to think again. But I didn't want to. I wanted to do something useful, actually. In my point of view, I felt useless doing research, which, of course, is just a feeling of yourself. I don't judge. And I really admire researchers fully, but not for myself. Right. So at that time, I said, like, okay, what could I do? So I went to work for a while in uh, La Cité de l'Espace. Space, Space City. City Museum. Okay. Exactly. So I was guiding there, the tourists. Right. So I explained them about astronomy, science, space stuff. So I did it for a few months. That's like a teaching role. Was that your first foray into teaching? First? No, that was not my first glimpse, actually. Since I'm 15, so I told you my grandfather was fond of astronomy. Yeah. Uh, one of his subjects that he really liked to learn. And he did some training in my region, Le Gers. We have a very famous astronomy club. And you can be trained there, learn things, to understand how you use telescope, to learn how to do photography, astrophotography. So he used to go there. 
And you know, in college and lycée, you can do a stage at the end. The internship. The internship. And I did it there in that astronomy association for two weeks. And I really learned a lot. And I was like, whoa, I love astronomy. So after that, when I was 18, I was working in a restaurant. I talked to them. I was like, okay, I, I, I would like to, if you have a space for me, I would like during my holidays to work for you. Maybe if you can give me a small salary, I would be happy to talk about astronomy to people. So that's where I started to talk to the public, actually. First to young students, could be a primary school, it could be teenagers, it could be adults. And then slowly, slowly, during the year, that was my full-time student job, to talk to people about astronomy. So when I went to the city of space, I knew already people there because of this experience before. So I felt at that point, my mother starting to tell me, come on, you should try to be a teacher with your master's degree. What else can you do anyway? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no, I was teasing a bit. No, of course. No, no, she was not saying like that. But then I was like, no way, I'm never going to be a teacher to, to be in front of kids. But I was like, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a try. Why not? I mean, I don't have the diploma. Let's try. So I, I was a substitute for five months in a high school and I loved it. I felt useful. You know, for the first time of my life, I felt like, okay, they are not easy to handle. I was 21, huh? can you imagine? Yes, I, I remember like, I remember being 21 in right? front of students. Oh my yes. God, so young, you know? <laughs> no, I was, I was older, sorry, I was 24. I see, I 24, see. 24, 24. First experience in teaching in high school, 24. And then I was like, wow, that was so challenging. But then I enjoyed it at the end, you know? And I told myself, okay, why not? Let's go for the teaching exam. So then I started my, my journey in teaching. <laughs> There's this misconception out there that many teachers are people who failed at other things. Uh. And in fact, everybody is somebody who has failed at everything. Of course, has failed everybody. at other things. Exactly. I mean, nobody is doing something because they didn't fail. Exactly. You know, they, exactly. They, everybody's failed That's at something. That's part of the path, yeah. And there's this unkind version of saying things that people sometimes say, those who can do, those who can't teach. Exactly. But the fact of the matter is that it's rare that people say they're born wanting to be a teacher. Exactly. We discover, we discover that we like sharing. We're passionate exact. about what we, about we're sharing. passionate about our, yeah. about our subject matter. And, exactly. And we, we enjoy interacting with people. Exactly. And we feel a responsibility. Exactly. And, and that's why I bristle a bit when, when I hear people say, you know, well, he's a teacher because, you know, he could, he do could not do anything else. That, that, yeah. And, I, and if anybody's listening to this right now and has ever said that before, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. But, <laughs> but getting back to this experience, so you, then you went, you passed the CAPES. Or what's well, it? Did you do the CAPES, the private one or the CAPES? No, aggregation. Okay, oh, you went is, right uh, to the aggregation. Yeah, you said right skip it. Why not just hit hit the aggregation? <laughs> yeah, I tried. I tried. Yeah. The aggregation is is a step above. I mean, I've, I've I mean, talked it, about this in previous episodes, mm, but it's yeah. it's it enables it, it enables you to teach not only in secondary but also after high school for the first two years. So in école préparatoire. So you could work in a prépa. I could, <laughs> but I, I, I don't want. You can torture kids. <laughs> yeah, I can torture kids. My turn. <laughs> no, I actually, see. I did pass the aggregation, but I didn't feel at that time, and even now. I'm quite happy with secondary school. I would not like to go to preparatoire, école préparatoire. At least for now. At least for now. At least for now. Yeah, Still, at least for now. So, so once you got your aggregation, mm. where did you teach it first? I got my first post in the 
Paris region. Oh, okay. South of Paris, All actually. Right. So I belong to the Versailles Academy. All right. So I taught seven years there before okay. coming to Singapore. So right from Versailles, you left the palace and headed, sure. to, uh, headed to Singapore. So the Singapore is your first my expatriation, first, yes. your first, first school first, abroad. First school abroad. Wow, you jumped right in. Wow, right with in. both feet. <laughs> exactly. And now, how long have you been with us here at IFS? That's my year number five. Year number five. So you, you were hired by LFS. I was hired by LFS. And then yes, you moved I knew to the, IFS. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so you started right away teaching. So what exactly do you teach? Physics and chemistry. Physics and chemistry. We do both, yeah. And what grade levels do you teach? I teach in both college and lycée. Right. So Mo this, most, of, most of the secondary teachers do both. Yeah, that's not, very not important. All, but most do. I yeah. think, you know, that's very important because, and I think that's something that I really like about here. We do teach in both which I think is very important. Because in France, I used to teach only in high school. I had no knowledge about what they knew. I mean, of course, you could see the curriculum, but if you don't go through it yourself, if you don't teach it yourself, you don't really know what they really know and where you can start the lesson knowing their knowledge, you know? Like, exactly. Uh, so, so that's very important to know. So for me, what's very funny is like that year, I am teaching sixième and terminal. Oh, so can you imagine the huge the extremes, extremes, extremes. The, two, the most extremes. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I have noticed in working in a school which does both middle school and high school, uh, you get far fewer teachers in the secondary school saying, "Oh my goodness, what are they teaching them mm. in college in right. middle school?" Right. Oftentimes, you'd hear, you know, the first year of high school in the United States, I think it's ninth grade or 10th grade, depending on the school, you'd hear 10th grade teachers saying, wow, what did they do in middle mm. school? It's like they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. And, and of course, once you've been in the situation of where, course. you know, you understand better. learning is, is cyclical. It's, it's of course. spiral learning, you know, exactly. you teach and then they forget and then you teach of course, that's and then part they of the remember, process. but then they forget. And exactly. then that's just how we learn and how exactly. we teach. So. Exactly. so that's interesting that you pointed that out, that it is unique to our school that most of us teach in both the middle school and the high school. And so you're here. It's five years now. Five years. Some pretty hard years with COVID. That obviously. was not easy, to be honest, yeah. So how, nobody, yeah. <laughs> what are the highlights for you? We all know a lot of the lowlights, but what are some of the highlights? During the COVID period? During any period since you've oh, been here. Since I've been here, oh man, so many highlights. For sure, discovering Southeast Asia. Yes. Travel that's is traveling. That's, of course, during COVID, that was the thing. But like outside of those moments, the, the traveling is amazing. You know, like we are so lucky to go to the airport in 20 minutes to take a plane and go in a country that people are dreaming of, you know. Exactly. For us, it's like one hour, two hours, three hours away. It's okay. amazing. Outside of work and outside of holiday when we get to travel, what do mm. you do in your free time? Just okay. after school yeah. or when, you're, when you have a... An Free hour time. or two just to hang out. So actually, I'm doing sport, but okay. like humbly, you know, I'm not, I'm doing <laughs> martial arts, but. Oh, great. Don't go crazy. It's not like, I'm like MMA or. So I'm doing capoeira, which oh. is a Brazilian martial art. I started in France, actually. Discovered it in France and I loved it so much, even if it's very hard, like any sport, of course. But this one demands a lot of flexibility, a lot of commitment. And I kind of taking it my own way. So I go slow, so I learn slow, but I enjoy it fully because capoeira is beyond sport. It's about Brazilian culture, about Brazilian music, about singing, about rituals. And I love the whole package, you know, that you can find in this sport. And the community is open-minded people. They are welcoming everybody from everywhere. And I really love this kind of vibe. So I still enjoy, so I do there in Singapore since 2019. 
Well, I would and love I, I, to hear more about it, but as you can hear in the background, the bell. the bell is ringing, so we do have to pleasure. get back to work. Thank you so much, Clément Bluteau, for Thank coming you, in and colleagues. sitting down with My me pleasure. here on Parcours Ed. And it has been a true pleasure talking to you, and I hope we get to do this again very soon. Well, I would be happy to come back anytime. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we'll say bye now. This has been Parkour Ed with Colin Daly. If you enjoyed today's show, consider giving it a rating on Apple Podcast. Also, if you'd like to be interviewed or if you have questions about anything, feel free to contact me at colindaly at gmail.com. That's C-O-L-I-N-D-A-I-L-E-Y at gmail.com. <laughs>